Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us at tomballbible.church. Well, turn to me, to with me, with Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. We are breaking into a new chapter this morning, but we're not breaking into uh, a new portion of the outline just yet. We're still in the justification section of Romans that goes from 321 to the end of chapter 5, explaining and looking into, lining out what justification really is. And if you were with us the past few weeks in chapter 4, we saw this example of Abraham. And if you've been following along, it's, let's just suppose a reader is following along and getting what, what Paul is saying about Abraham, and that thus then applies to us, that justification comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And so you could read that and go, I understand that. I get that. That's clear. But how do I know that I can't lose my standing with having the imputed righteousness of Christ? How do I know that that stays? I get, I remember in 416 where it says that the promise hangs on grace. It rests in grace. I remember that. And there's this whole idea about a guarantee, but I need to hear more about this. The reader could be saying things like, I still don't feel assured of justification, assured of salvation. So that's what we're looking at this morning, the doctrine of eternal security. That's what this paragraph is about. And eternal security for those who believe in Jesus Christ is not something that we made up to make ourselves feel better or to feel more comfortable. It's not a human-centered doctrine at all. The doctrine of eternal security secures glory for God as just and the justifier. That's what it does. It's primarily a God-centered doctrine. Because if you have to think about it, think about it like this. How does God get glory through the death and resurrection of his son if those who trust in him can be lost again? How does God get any glory from that? Or how does God get glory if he can lose his children back to the household of Satan? Is he even omnipotent if that's possible? Is he all-powerful if that can happen? See, if we aren't careful, we can say that if we're initially justified by faith, but we are kept saved by our works, then what we do is we make God a Darwinist. That God is merely just waiting for the fittest to survive eternally. He gave all Christians the same environment to grow up in, and he's just gonna let nature take its course. He's only admitting into heaven those who are strong enough. That makes God a Darwinian evolutionist. And it also makes Christianity a works righteousness religion, that it's based upon our works. There's no way around that. And then how can, if we hold to that we're saved by faith, but kept saved by ourselves, how does that not make God just a mere gatekeeper of heaven instead of the sovereign ruler and focal point of heaven? So Paul's going to set us straight this morning on this doctrine in, in verses 1 through 11. So let's look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, you got to figure out why is it there? What's it there for? It refers back to this whole justification discussion that us being justified is wholly a work of God. My sin being imputed to Jesus Christ and his righteousness being imputed to me gives me standing in front of God where he can declare me to be righteous, though I am not. I did not 
earn his favor and I did not reposition the faith that I already had and then put it on the right spot. No, I was given the ability to believe. I was dead at the bottom of the pool and God pulled me up and his spirit breathed new life into me and I'm a new creature now. So justification is talking about it. Because of that, you stand declared righteous before God because you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not that of your own. This justification is a one-time legal declaration. It's not a process in any way. You notice the, the tense of that verb. You see that there in verse one? Have been justified. That's past tense for us in English, but in Greek, it's a tense that we don't have. Let me give you a quick primer on that. It's in the aorist tense in Greek. And that tense is somewhat undefined, but what we can know for rock solid sure about that tense is that it only describes past events. It only describes occurrences that have been completed. So then therefore, according to the original languages, have been justified is what it says. It's three words in English, it's one word in Greek. Therefore, if the moment we believe, that's the moment we are justified. It happens right then and it's permanent. There is no waiting period. There is no background check. And there is certainly no need to linger in purgatory upon our death in order to finish out our justification. It is a past and completed event. Christ's work is finished on the cross and it's true of you the moment you trust in him. But that justification of by faith has brought about a new reality that we haven't talked about yet. Paul's gonna bring it up here, but we haven't talked about it yet at all. You see that in verse one? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is this new reality that justification has brought about for us, peace with God. We were justified in the past and now we have peace in the present. And we have to look at this then. If our new status of being justified by faith brings us at peace with God, then what were we before justified by faith? We were at war with God. That's the only logical conclusion that you can draw. And in 6.11, he's gonna line out, 6 through 11 rather, he's gonna line out exactly what we were before we were saved. But we're gonna get there in a minute. All you have to do to understand this reality is turn to James 4, verse 4, where it says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you believe that to be true about yourself before Christ? Do you believe that to be true about your friends and family who are not saved right now? Do you believe that to be true about your unsaved kids right now? Because this is what the Bible is teaching. We tend to view our relationship with Jesus Christ and then our correlating status with God the Father very casually. We view it as if uh, it's a particular decision that we've made as far as schooling for our family. Or we view it like it's a particular uh, financial system that we do within our household that proves to be beneficial. Or we even view it so casually like this is the best brand of milk that has no hormones in it. And what we're willing to do is that we're convinced this is the best way to live for sure. We're so glad we've discovered it. And what we wanna do then is tell other people about our discovery of this better way to live. We're so enthralled with the product of Jesus Christ that we'll just market him for free. 
Is that the position that we take? No, that's exceedingly unbiblical and exceedingly prideful. It's not rightfully humble in any way. We weren't just merely non-patrons of the product of Jesus Christ before we were saved. We were his enemies. And what does God do with his enemies? Just look at Psalm 21, 8 through 12. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. That's what God does to his enemies. So verse one then should cause us great rejoicing. Praise God that we aren't enemies anymore, that God has gone after us and created peace with us. Worthy is his name to be praised because that doesn't describe the saved, that you're not at war with him anymore. You have fundamentally peace with God. Isn't this why we sing as Christians? Isn't this why we share the gospel? Because we have peace with God. And those who are justified have permanent peace. Why? The end of verse one says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through him that we have peace with God. Now, as a sidebar, peace with God is, the dif- is different than the peace of God, right? I am at peace with God, meaning there's no longer strife and animosity and war between us, but I don't always walk in the peace of God. I can be anxious. I can worry. I can sin in those ways. And how I address that, I address that the way that Paul lines out in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But we have peace with God always. And it's not something we have to, be to keep working to maintain. We have it. Those who are justified by faith have peace with God. And what does this prevailing peace with God grant us access to? Verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The vault of grace, the grace of God has been unlocked to us who are justified by faith. That's what we've been granted access to. And it is only through him that we can obtain the access to the limitless bounds of God's grace. By faith in Christ, we are granted access to the vault. He has the keys. He lets us in. And not only is this vault filled with all treasures of eternity in the glories of heaven, more than any human could possibly quantify, but this vault is destruction-proof that you could let a bomb go off on the top of this vault and it wouldn't even tremble the water in your glasses. That's where we stand. That's what we have access to. We stand in grace, but we crumble outside the vault. 
And it's not because we finally found a system of thinking that enables us to stiffen our own legs to be able to stand. No, it's because God makes us stand. Romans 14.4 will say that when we get there, that God makes us stand in grace. And our granted access to grace and God making us stand, it causes a rightful response in us. And that response is later in verse two. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It creates in us a response of rejoicing. That's what it causes for us. And we're rejoicing in something specific. Our hope is set on something specific. What does it say? The glory of God. Our great hope is for God to receive more glory. That's the Christian hope. The moment, we cannot wait for the moment when God gets more glory. When Christ returns, conquers all evil, vanquishes Satan for all of eternity, and now it is unquestionable who is the most glorious. And that is God. We long for that moment. We love that moment. And it will happen because it's not a future possibility. It's a future reality. Our chief concern in life as Christians is maximizing the glory of God. That's why we purge sin out of our own hearts so that God gets more glory. That's why we parent intentionally according to scriptures so that God gets more glory. That's why we take care of our older and ailing parents intentionally because God gets more glory. We study our Bibles. We give to our church. We share the gospel because God gets more glory. That drives us, that fuels and directs our Christian effort, that God would get more glory. And that causes a heart of great rejoicing because we can rejoice in something that is a foregone conclusion. But we don't just have to rejoice in the foregone conclusion. We can rejoice in the traveling as well. Look at verse three and four. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. That we don't just rejoice in the foregone conclusion of God's glory, that will happen, it can't not happen. We can rejoice, Paul says, in our sufferings. Romans eight eighteen, kind of a corresponding verse within the, within the same book. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not even worth mentioning in the same breath because of the glory that's coming, me kind of whining and talking about my suffering down here. See, we as Christians, we don't suffer like the world suffers. We know there's a purpose to this. We know there is a hand directing this. We know how the story ends. We know that the process has purpose, that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character leads to hope. That's not just Paul's idea. James says the same thing in James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering knits our hearts, our souls to the very soul of Jesus, who Isaiah calls the suffering servant. Suffering is not to, 
is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Suffering is Christ-likeness. That's what he came and that's what he did. He suffered for 33 years. It knits us to our very Savior's heart and it brings about the endurance necessary for salvation. Mark 13, 13 says this, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Life is hard as a Christian. We're promised that. We are guaranteed that. The descriptions of it are not a leisure cruise or sipping tea on the back porch. The New Testament descriptions of the Christian life are a fight and a race. That's what we're told to do. So what I need then as a Christian is I need the lung capacity and the muscle density to finish the race and to finish the fight. That's what I need And that's what suffering does. Suffering will show you who you are and where your hope is. Suffering proves your character. If you have an NASB Bible, that's what that says in your Bible. It says proven character. Enduring through suffering proves your character to be godly and your hope to be in God's glory. That word character is the word dokime. And it's the process of going through a test to validate something's contents. It literally means the quality of being approved through testing. That's that word character is. We know who you really are when you're squeezed because what's inside of you comes out. And that's what Paul is laying out for us, that if our identity is in Christ and living a life in step with his, then that will be proven at the moment of suffering. We as Christians, we need to read stories of martyrs We need to read stories and know stories of people who gave up much for the kingdom. You can go all the way back to the very first generation, obviously the apostles, but the men that those apostles discipled in like the year 108, somebody like Ignatius of Loyola, he's martyred. He's sent to the lions for preaching the gospel. And this is what he says as he's being marched through those gates. I am God's wheat And I am being ground by the teeth of wild beasts to make a pure loaf for Christ. I am just a flower being beaten pure to make a loaf for Jesus. And the lion's teeth are what are going to do that for me. And then a guy who was his contemporary named Polycarp, he dies in AD 156. And they, they decided eventually, they were like, you know what? Throwing them to the lions isn't working. That's just kind of growing everything. The more we feed them to the lions, the bigger they grow and the more the name of God spreads. So let's try burning them. So they're going to take Ignatius and they're going to nail him to a stake and burn him alive. But he tells them, you don't need to nail me to the stake. I'm not going anywhere. The one who has given me the strength to endure in this life will give me the strength to endure this fire. And as they're trying to light the fire at his feet, This is what he prays. He says, I bless you, God, because you have deemed me worthy of this day and this hour. Thank you for this privilege that you thought I was worthy enough to suffer for you. That kind of perspective we just don't have anymore. But that's the biblical perspective of Romans 5, 1 through 5. Because our hope does not embarrass us. What does it say in verse five? And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christians aren't gonna end up embarrassed because they've misplaced their hope. 
That's an impossibility. This hope cannot shame us. We don't talk about hope the same way the world talks about hope. When the world talks about hope, it's wishful thinking. It's a potentially, it's a potential outcome of a certain environment or moment. Throwing a Hail Mary at the end of the football game. I hope he catches it. He might not. That's not Christian hope in the slightest. Christian hope is waiting for a coming reality. It is not wishful. It is expectant. This is going to happen. I'm just waiting for it. There is no possibility of Christ not returning and not fulfilling what he promised to you the day that you were converted. There is no possibility of that. Christian hope is a confident expectation of a coming reality. That's Christian hope. Confident expectation of a future reality. You know what the New Testament does to make a metaphor for hope? The metaphor for hope in the New Testament is this. Look at Hebrews 6, verse 19. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Our hope is an anchor. What does an anchor do? It doesn't move. Now, no matter how the wind blows or the tide goes up and down or the currents come through, the ship stays because the anchor holds. And where is our anchor positioned? It says, into the inner place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. That's where our anchor is hooked. The very presence of God. See, this is biblical hope. This is what Paul is talking about. And we are able to have this hope because of the outpouring of God's love. And the outpouring of God's love has a name. It's the Holy Spirit. That What does it say in that verse? Has been poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit. We as Christians have unwavering hope because our bodies have become the very temples of God. God doesn't take up residence in brick and mortar buildings anymore or tents like the tabernacle. He lives inside his people. Those are the physical buildings that he lives within. Verse Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? That's the reality of what we have. God no longer resides outside. He resides within. How could we not have hope that God didn't just save you and then set you aside until he was done doing what he was doing with the planet earth? That he saved you and he poured his very spirit within you. You don't deserve to have God residing in you, but nevertheless, he strolls right into your condemned, foreclosed, ramshackle heart and puts his name on the mailbox. And he's not a renter, he's an owner. He's never moving out. That's the outpouring of God's love to us. Now, Paul, remind us again who we were when God did that. Look at verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When was that? When we were weak and ungodly. That's when Christ died. But don't get too high thinking that weakness is something that you can kind of overcome. You could do some spiritual weightlifting and get stronger. The biblical weakness, the Greek word asthenes, is incapacitation, debilitating illness, moral inability. That's what that word weak, it's better translated helpless. When you were helpless, when you were ungodly, you see, you weren't just merely helpless laying on the floor. You were ungodly. You were living in a way absolutely 
contrary to that of God. And that's when Christ died for us. MacArthur sums it up very helpfully like this. God's love for his own is unwavering because it is not based on how lovable we are, but on the constancy of his own character. God's supreme act of love came when we were at our most undesirable. We were at our most undesirable. And in contrast, Paul's going to say, you would never do this. What Christ did, you would never do. In verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. Don't get mixed up in the righteous and good. Think righteous is a person who keeps the moral law perfectly, always does what the law requires. A good person does what the law requires and then intentionally goes above and beyond to do intentional good. So think about the good person being like, they, don't, they not only obey the speed limit, they mailed Chili's gift cards to the police officer. They, they go above and beyond. So Paul's saying, you won't even die for that guy. If we were gonna die for somebody, I'll make sure that it's somebody who's really worth my time, somebody who really earned it, somebody who really deserves it. If I'm gonna pay the ultimate price, that person better be worth it. But who did Jesus die for? Terrorists, school shooters, abortion doctors. That's when he died for those people. But God shows his love For us, verse eight, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did he die for you? When you deserved it? When you had elevated yourself to the deserving poor? I'm still needy, but somehow noble? No, when you were a sinner, when you were a godless, helpless sinner, a terrorist, school shooter, abortion doctor, that's when he died for you. That's when Jesus looks down and says, I'll die for these people. I'll exchange my blood for their blood. It's at that moment. And verse nine, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Look at this reality. If it, if it is indeed Christ's blood that justifies us, then Paul says, much more shall we be ultimately saved by Christ. So it's not as if I'm justified by Christ's blood, but then I'm going to be ultimately saved by my own doing or by my own effort. No, it's going to be all of Christ beginning to end. And notice and don't forsake noticing what we are being saved from. What does verse nine say? We're saved from ourselves Are we being saved from sadness of an unfulfilled life? Are we being saved from the devil and his wiles? No, we're being saved from God. The wrath of God is what we're being saved from. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You didn't need to be saved from the devil's talons. You needed to be saved from the wrath of God. Satan's not going to have any advantage over the average unbeliever in hell. He's going to be punished just like they are. He has no wrath. He has no authority or leadership. We don't need to be saved from him. We needed to be saved from God. And if God is saving us from himself by sacrificing himself, then it makes no sense that we could be lost from himself. 
It doesn't even follow logically. See, the theology of Romans is that it's inconceivable that somebody could be justified by faith, but then ultimately lost because they failed to kind of follow up. They failed to keep going. They failed to to finish out the process. That's why Romans is so precious to us, this doctrine of the perseverance or rather the preservation of the saints. It's so beautiful to us here in Romans 5. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See, Paul's logic is this, the Holy Spirit's logic rather through Paul. If you were reconciled to a holy God when you were a defiant rebel against him, why would he cast you out now that you were a son or a daughter? If that's when you were reconciled, I mean, it should, it should be astounding to us that any Christian or church or denomination could hold to the fact that salvation can be lost. But nevertheless, Church of the Nazarene believes that, the Wesleyan Methodists believe that, Free Will Baptists believe that, Assembly of God believe that. But it's antithetical to the very pages of Scripture. That word saved at the end of verse 10, that's the Greek word sozo. And that word has in fullness of view All of salvation, justified initially, perfectly fulfilled and finished sanctification, realized and experienced glorification in heaven and complete exemption from punishment. That's what that word has in view. So say it again, Paul. When were we reconciled to God? When we hated him. That's when we were reconciled to God. Reconciliation presupposes estrangement. Or people who are in a friendly relationship don't need to be reconciled. So now, how could we do something worse as a regenerated person? If I'm born again, thus made a new creature, the old is gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if that's true of me, then how could I possibly behave worse than I did as an unbeliever who was a helpless, ungodly, sinful enemy of God? That's impossible. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose it. You would be back on the track towards hell before you got up off your knees praying to to be saved. There's no other way around it. If any part of your path to heaven depends upon you, then your destination will ultimately be hell. It has to be all of God in order for it to work. In the ordering of salvation of sinners, it was far more costly. It was far more painful for God to endure and go through the crucifixion of his son. So why would he keep you through the crucifixion of his son, the truly painful, the truly excruciating part of the whole deal, but then waffle on the backside, finishing it all the way out? It doesn't make any logical sense. It doesn't make any biblical sense. So verses nine and 10, let me illustrate these verses to you in this way. Let's say like this. Let's say the Astros come to my three-year-old son, Shane, and they say, Shane, We're going to draft you number one overall. And I say, of course you are. He's my son. How could he not be? He's three years old. We're going to draft you and we're going to start you on opening day. You're going to pitch on opening day. But before that, we're going to make sure we signed you to the biggest contract possible. And then you're also going to bat lead off because we have that much affection for you, Shane. And so then me, hopefully as a rational father would go, "Um, Astros, that's a horrible idea. Why on earth are you doing this? You have nothing to gain. And they just go, ah, Mr. Sanders, we're drafting your son and we're paying him this much and he's gonna pitch for us. And they endure it. 
So they put a three-year-old out on the mound and watch him just roll that ball into the catcher. She ain't gonna throw pretty far away as long as the ball is nerf and it's down the stairs. Not so much 60 feet, six inches with a hard baseball, but they let him go out there and he pitches, he rolls it in, he gets bigger. Every seventh inning, you gotta pause the game so he can take a nap and then start the game back up again. He's three years old, pause the game so he can go potty training and then come back. They're gonna put up with that and they just keep him on the roster. Year after year, Shane keeps getting to play for the, for the Houston Astros and he starts getting bigger, starts getting older year after year. So now he's 24 years old and now he's got a 98 mile an hour fastball. He's got a knuckleball that moves like a gerbil's inside that thing. I mean, he's, he's a phenomenal all-star now. But then one day, goes out to the mound, they're playing some team and he just gets rocked. I mean, he just gets blown up, horrible outing, worst pitching ever, 10 runs in two innings, doesn't even make it to the end of the second inning before he gets pulled. Now, if Shane goes to the locker room, gets his jersey and his glove and walks up to the coach after the game and says, hey, I'm sure you're gonna cut me now. Here's my jersey and here's my glove. And then the coach just sits him down and says, Shane, I drafted you when you were three. I put you on the mound when you couldn't even make it there in the air. I didn't draft you based on your ability to play baseball at all. Why on earth would I cut you from the team now? Your ability to be on the team was never in your ability to play baseball. And therein lies the reality of our salvation. We weren't saved based on our potential for morality. You weren't saved based on God running the numbers and you looking like a safe investment. You were saved based on the the will of his good pleasure. So then now as a regenerated person with a new heart and a new will, when you still sin, why would he put you out? You didn't choose to be joined in. I once heard a a Christian leader say when he was 15, he thought he was hot stuff. He had grown up in this really, you know, traditional Baptist church that had a kid's choir. So he's 15 years old and he's saying, you know what, I'm gonna quit the choir. So he plans at dinner time to go and tell his dad, dad, I thought this through. I put a lot of time into this, prayed about it. And uh, I'm quitting the choir. And the dad just keeps eating, goes, son, you never joined. Just keeps on eating. It was never your choice to be a part of this thing in the first place. So you can't just leave now of your own volition. The same is true for us with Christ. It was never on us. It was all of him. So then when we stumble and when we trip and when we, when we fail, when we're imperfect, why would he cast us out now? That's what Paul answers for us this morning, that his life, if Jesus' death and resurrection justifies us in God's sight, then Jesus' life carries us through to the end. You don't have eternal security because now you're smart enough to really cling to Jesus all the way through to the last moment. No, you have eternal security because Jesus clings to you, not the other way around. And in verse 11, he concludes with, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. These aren't just dry facts for us to kind of just nod agreeingly. It says, now we rejoice because we've been reconciled with the God of the universe. We were helpless, godless, sinful enemies. And then God moves towards us and reconciles the relationship. 
That's the reality. How can we not rejoice that while in that state, God himself stoops down to us and brings us up? He took it upon himself to exchange the hostility between us for peace. When we were insurgents, he made us sons and daughters. He did that. And do you notice what the verb is at the end of that verse? In verse 10, or verse 11 rather, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have not achieved reconciliation. We've received it. We had open, empty hands and God gave it to us. We didn't synergize with him and kind of coordinate and cooperate. It wasn't a synergistic act involving multiple actors. It was a monergistic act involving one. And it was God who did it for us. Now I want to conclude our morning with a quote. And I know I do this to you guys a lot. Let me explain, I'm going to explain a little bit why I do all these quotes time. For one, I want you to make sure that you know that I'm not sitting back in that office all week just thinking of whatever comes into my own brain, that I'm talking to, to respected men through their books. I want, I want you guys to know that I'm spending time trying to be taught and be instructed, and I prefer to only talk to dead people. I want you, I want you to be dead before I read your book, and if you're not dead, I want you almost dead. Out of the 11 commentaries that I got on the book of Romans, seven of those guys are dead and the others are almost there. I, I, wanna, I don't want the newest, flashiest thing. I want the time-tested true because if it's true, it ain't new. And if it's new, it probably isn't true. So I, I, I want to read deeply from gray heads and rotting bones. That's where I want to, that's my conversation. That Bible study and preaching should be me hearing from God out of his word and then being in conversation with people who are smarter, wiser, more sanctified, more holy. So that's why I always give out these quotes because I, I want you to be in conversation with those people. Well, I want you to know who those people are too. So this last one I want to give because, and I give all that precursor. This guy just actually recently died. Um, I can't summarize it any better than he can. And I, what I want is I want us to marinate all week on the reality of Romans 5, 1 through 11. And I can't say it. I can't condense it down any better than this guy. And you get in trouble if you plagiarize. So I have to tell you who it is and read you the quote. So it's from Dr. R.C. Sproul. And he said this. I'm going to read it twice and then we're going to be done. I'm going to just see this. Being justified, we have peace with God. And God has taken the initiative to bring about that peace. We did not surrender and sue for peace. God conquered us. And in his gracious mercy, he enabled us to be reconciled to him through the work of his son. When God enters into a peace treaty with his people, it is a permanent peace. He may be displeased with us and we may grieve him. But once we have peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ, that peace is ours forever. I'm going to read it again. Being justified, we have peace with God and God has taken the initiative to bring about that peace. We did not surrender and sue for peace. God conquered us. And in his gracious mercy, he enabled us to be reconciled to him through the work of his son. When God enters into a peace treaty with his people, it is a permanent peace. He may be displeased with us and we may grieve him. But once we have peace with God, through the work of Jesus Christ, that peace is ours forever. Amen.
Aren't you glad it doesn't depend upon you? And aren't you glad you aren't the first person to read the scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? We can let smarter, wiser people do that way before us? I sure am. Let's pray. To find out more, visit us at tombaubible.church.